0: This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws.
1: And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height.
0: And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff.
1: Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include...
0: Headline Ripping.
1: Igor Guzenko.
0: Heroic Surveyors.
1: And George Hunt Williamson. hang
0: gliders, marshmallows, spandex. That's the worst shopping list I've ever heard. I think you mean the best. Oh, you're talking about Mad Scientist University. I had a feeling we should be talking about Atlas Games at this point in the show.
1: Mad Scientist University is a card game that's exactly like going back to school.
0: Right, because there's an insane assignment and each player has to make it happen using a different unstable element. Like
1: trying to find a willing sacrifice before the next full moon using a hang glider.
0: Or write your name on the moon with beef jerky. Or find Atlantis with tongs. Beef jerky might be better for that. Probably. Uh, Once everyone's mad plans have been hatched and their details described, the group's TA picks the best one.
1: The TA can use whatever arbitrary criteria they choose.
0: Without fear of being fired, it's just like tenure. That evil
1: genius in training who's chosen wins the round.
0: That sounds easier than the thing with a hang glider.
1: Here's the great news. If you buy Mad Scientist University right now, Atlas Games will throw in the Spring Break expansion for free.
0: That's 52 cards, perfect for helping you plan that truly unforgettable trip to Mexico.
1: And if you're in the U.S., they'll pay for shipping, too.
0: Does Atlas Games hate people outside the U.S.?
1: Not at all. That's why they're offering cut-rate shipping for those folks, too.
0: Now, just like a university essay, we will sum up by telling you what we just told you.
1: In Mad Scientist University, everyone
0: gets an insane assignment. Then everyone uses an unstable element to describe a mad plan for making it happen.
1: And then the TA picks a winner.
0: And when you buy it right now, you get the Spring Break expansion for free.
1: Do you think they sell giant robots at Sandals Resorts?
0: If you're playing Mad
1: Scientist University, you get to decide that for yourself. To learn more, visit atlas-games.com slash Ken and Robin dash MSU.
0: That's atlas-games.com slash Ken and Robin dash M like Mike, S like sugar, U like union.
1: Or follow the link in the show notes.
0: Yeah, that's the way to do it.
1: It's time once again to ask Ken and Robin. So let's ask Ken and Robin. Johan Delalande asks Ken and Robin, For Knights Black agents or similar games, how do you set scenes during real-life current crises without seeming to make light of them? Uh, Robin, how do you set scenes during real-life current crises? I know that uh, feng shui, for example, was very tied into the fraught political situation in Hong Kong. At least it was when you wrote it. I don't know if your more recent feng shui game was uh, backed up by democracy protests and uh, chycom villainy
0: this this answer of course is addressed to johan who is my attache to france so i've always felt that popular culture does not need to shy away from dealing with the real world that it is the way that we kind of process real world events and you can do that in a trashy way or a metaphorically rich way but that there is nothing inherently disrespectful about treating real events through the lens of genre. And that, in fact, I think that uh, popular storytelling does an enormous service to us in enabling us to begin to come to terms with things. And if we're happy to portray uh, the depths of horror of World War II in our gaming, which, of course, we uh, have been... Uh, pretty much all along, that uh, the thing that separates what's going on today from the horrors of the past is simply that it seems uh, fresh to us, but that part of what storytelling can do is that it can thread the lines of similarity between those things and remind us uh, what is real and serious about life, even though the surface material of a storyline can be uh, apparently frivolous. So uh, I guess my main answer here is that I think that uh, role-playing is a narrative art form, and like any other form of narrative, it can be um, both uh, serious and light at the same time, and it is that connection between those two things that might make it uh, richer or more accessible than just a straightforward, somber approach to the same subject matter.
1: Yeah, and I think that you can have a glib or disrespectful approach either to a historical event as well as to a current event, or a glib and disrespectful approach in another art form. I mean, we can all think of movies, you know, that Roberto Benigni nonsense that sort of made uh, the Holocaust just seem like a backdrop for a, you know, hugging and learning story. Plenty of movies have, uh, and plenty of novels have um, uh, trivialized historical or current events. So it's nothing inherent about games that means it's going to trivialize it, assuming that you approach it with some degree of seriousness and intend to use that event for its meaning as opposed to just as a uh, quaint backdrop. And in many cases, for example, in a Knights Black Agents game, you may actually intend to use it as the spy genre often uses foreign locations as a backdrop, literally. Um In the midst of the Syrian civil war which is a horrible thing that is going on, you're hunting a vampire. And the Syrian Civil War, the only thing that you necessarily know about it in this context is that it's very dangerous, and there's a lot of people around with guns, and none of them can probably be trusted, which is what you would assume about, you know, Butte, Montana also, if it was a spy game set there. But uh, the Civil War has, you know, more active gunplay going on than even Butte on a, on a good Friday. So I would say that, there's nothing, in, I would certainly echo what you're saying, Robin, that there's nothing inherently trivializing about setting a game there, and that the goal should be that the more closely you actually interact with the event, the, the more uh, you draw on that specific event for specific narrative elements, then that's the closer you have to be to not saying that it was all because, you know, the fairies and the dwarves were having a fight or or something that, that seems to be absolving bad people of responsibility or making the whole thing seem like a, a, a sort of a, a ludic afterthought as opposed to the centerpiece or a centerpiece or even a, a main thread or a theme of the game, right?
0: You mentioned Feng Shui earlier, and one of the issues with that is that it posits this international conspiracy of uh, the descendants of magically transformed animals as the rulers of both the 19th century and the present day. And that has always made it difficult to do what a lot of people kind of want, which is to have a juncture where you go and fight Nazis, Mm -hmm. because that would then, because of the other things established about the setting, establish that, oh, well, the the Holocaust must have been engineered by uh, transformed animals. And that's, and it would be an example of something that was trivializing and disrespectful, and therefore something that I've always made sure to avoid right and so uh, I think your your point of uh making sure that the genre elements don't absolve the participant from the real horror of all of these situations, which is that they are um examples of mass scale predation basically by our fellow humans by people and that it really is people who are the scariest monsters of all. And so I think as long as you bear that in mind and remember that horrible things are horrible, the treatment of sort of Nazi pulp villains is interesting because it comes out of a tradition that started during the war itself. It sort of before the war actually. <laughs> right. Yes. Um, of, of mocking the Nazis as a propaganda measure against them. And, ...treating them as, as fools, and so classic examples uh, would be uh, the Jack Benny to be or not to be, for mm-hmm. example. And so, when you take that out of the context of wartime, uh, all of a sudden you have a situation where you have to kind of measure your layers of irony. So, for example, the people who made the show Hogan's Heroes, which is now remembered as a hideous example of trivializing the horror of the war... Uh, went through it themselves and were (laughs) working on that tradition of let's continue to ridicule the the Nazis. Now, there's a certain context at which I think that, you know, then becomes its own thing. And you can have different layers of irony according to the way that's treated. So, for example, the really wild, crazy, multi-leveled genre satire that is Danger 5 um, sort of is not only mocking the Nazis, but mocking the tradition of mocking the Nazis in a very weird meta way that includes Harryhausen style Nazi dinosaurs. Um And so that's got enough going onto it that it doesn't, it feels like a commentary on top of a commentary or part of that discussion. But I think you do want to make sure that you're just not using Nazis as, you know, fun bad guys who are a substitute for orcs that you at least somehow address that. So, um, you know, there have been games in the past, for example, just had space Nazis as a bad guy, but didn't really do anything with that other than to use Nazis as sort of a tongue in cheek synonym for villainy. And I, I find that a little difficult to to grapple with.
1: Maybe put a pin in the Nazis because we could come back and talk about Nazis as orcs as its whole own hut. And I think that the difference between the Nazis, even if you do orc them and even if you are doing it in a pulp enough context or a F-20 enough context, I guess, that orking is okay within the, you know, constraints of the genre, you might be more constrained and, and think it was worse somehow if you did that same thing with, say, Al-Qaeda or ISIS because their atrocities are, are very, very recent and they've maybe, you know, killed someone that you – that you knew or, or or whatever, and that would be a more personal... Uh, the, the, the wounds are more raw, right? I mean, right. no one would have any problem setting any kind of, of changeling game against the backdrop of, say, uh, Strongbow's invasion of Ireland in the 12th century or whatever the hell that was, um, because it's so long ago that not even the Irish remain mad about that because they have 700 years of more awful yeah, much things, more to, recent things to be, to be mad, mad about. about. And so, uh, as awful as that invasion was... It's it's you know it's it's completely you know sickly or by the pale cast of history and so but a current uh, situation a, a current game based on the Irish troubles might have more problems especially if you've got players who are Irish or players on the you know contrary who are um, uh, have uh, maybe uh, relatives or, or or family members who are in uh, you know the, uh, the the British Army at the time so there's going to be just simple questions that are I think different from historical weight and more along the lines of if you've got a player who you know is really sensitive to gaming about pregnancy uh you don't put the rosemary's baby demon into your game i think maybe this is a similar thing that it's a specific sort of a make sure that your players are able to stay in the narrative uh, and and enjoy the art form as it's intended, as opposed to going through some unrelated personal trauma. A horror game, for example, should be about directed trauma, designed trauma, created trauma. It shouldn't be about accidental trauma that you stumble on along the way, because then that destroys the value of the narrative.
0: Right. For a current example, the upcoming world-spanning campaign I wrote for the esoterrorist called World Breaker uses in one of its adventures... Uh, Boko Haram as an antagonist force, and it never tries to make them funny. It never tries to make dealing with them fun, and it never tries to indicate that the supernatural forces created them. But rather, in this in this case, the supernatural forces are parasitically feeding on the hatred and fear that they generate, Mm -hmm. and so. The thesis of the Esotericists all along has been that the real world, that the things that we see on the news, the things that give us uh, anxiety are more horrifying than vampires and werewolves and has tried to... uh, And so if you're deciding to sit down with your players and play the Esotericists, I would hope that everybody's aware of that as the premise. And so if there's someone who is just so incredibly traumatized by what the Boko Haram does in real life, as you suggest... You want to know that ahead of time and play something else.
1: Yeah. You know, and, and again, it's it's no different from someone, uh, I, I guess it's pragmatically no different from someone who just hates rolling dice because they can't ever seem to roll well, and so they would rather play, you know, Amber or something, um, or or Drama System. And so it, it's a lot of it is just about trying to set up your game night for the maximum amount of enjoyment for everyone, which is the same sort of advice that we always give. The other thing that you can do uh, with a, uh, real life current crisis, uh, to give it gravity and depth is to attach it to a thing in your setting that already has gravity and depth. And this is sort of the reverse of the normal way in which the setting borrows cred from the fantasy borrows cred from the reality. You can have the reality, uh, attached to the, uh, the, 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 the imaginary in a way that focuses the attention on the nature of the reality uh mythically so it's like an allegory where you would represent um uh soviet uh this communism as a as a as a giant bear that's that's mauling all of eastern europe in an editorial cartoon well maybe you have uh you're playing werewolf and you've got animal spirits and so you would have boko haram represented as the jackals right that that come out of the desert and and uh, destroy the flocks of nice uh, uh peaceful sheep and uh, and and other kinds of things and the the boko haram aren't run by jackals they're not made of jackals but the jack you know anubis or someone is is out there and anubis's actions and boko haram's actions are are reflecting each other and so when the players look at Boko Haram, they think, oh, right, Anubis, he's a he's a death god, and he's got a bunch of jackals. I see how that works. And so you, you draw on the power of symbolism without necessarily saying, oh, well, that's all right. Boko Haram is actually uh, run by Anubis, and once he stops interfering, everything will go back to normal.
0: Right, and I, I guess we're kind of hitting the same points, uh, which is that uh, you, as long as you give real emotional weight to what it is that you're doing and recognize the real horror of what it is, that adding the sort of nerd imagery that allows people to kind of approach the subject matter is not inherently trivializing or disrespectful. And that, uh, I think that it can seem so to some members of our community because they're used to seeing gaming and, uh, nerdy genres as a way of getting away from, uh, all of that material. And if you know, you have people who don't uh, ever want to refer to the real life and their gaming as again as you've already suggested uh, that that's something you need to know up front when you're getting player buy-in well i think we've uh, pretty well covered this question then and mm-hmm. can move on to the next segment This episode is also brought to you by The Bones, the book about dice.
1: As opposed to your femurs and phalanges, et al.
0: Although it does amply cover antelope ankle bones. I can't imagine who would have written that. The Bones is about dice and how they make us crazy.
1: How people audition their dice at the
0: game store before buying them. And scream in agony when a 20 cider falls on the floor and wastes a 20.
1: And how people train their dice by resting them on the best, best numbers.
0: numbers! Or put them on the bad numbers so the dice get tired of them.
1: So The Bones is a book about weird dice superstitions and customs.
0: But it's not just a glossary, it's history, philosophy,
1: theory! And the time I was putting together dice for Paul Zega's game Bacchanal.
0: Spoiler alert!
1: It's got essays from folks like Will Wheaton... John Kavalik, Chuck Wendig, and more.
0: And it's published by our friends Will Hindmarch and Jeff Tidball at Game Playwright, publishers of Hamlet's Hit Points and Things We Think About Games. Here's the best news about the bones. The good people at Game Playwright recently came into a bunch of printed copies they thought had been sold long ago. And now they're blowing them out. Because better to put them in people's hands than to let them freeze in some godforsaken Minnesota warehouse.
1: So the deal is this. Order now, and you get 66% off. You get a brand new essay, and you get super cheap shipping all around the world.
0: And a free PDF copy of the book.
1: Plus a coupon for a discount on Evil Hat's Deck of Fate.
0: You can buy it now at gameplaywright.net slash bones deal. The retina scan that you had to undergo in order to listen to this portion of our podcast indicates that you've once again entered the top secret perimeter of the trade craft Hut. This weekend, I thought I would throw at you a uh, an Avante person who uh, looms large in the iconography of Canadian espionage stories, and uh, see if it's familiar to you. This is the story of Igor Gazenko, who uh, was a Ukrainian-born uh, diplomat working in the Soviet embassy in Ottawa in uh, 1945, who defected to the Canadian authorities <laughs> and to a, against a the some, great
1: deal of resistance. It seems yes,
0: somewhat <laughs> reluctant uh, Prime Minister uh, Mackenzie King and uh, established what, in the view of some pundits, uh, was the beginning of the Cold War, at least the beginning of people's awareness of the Cold War. His image of him appearing before the press in a white hood is an iconic uh, image of 20th century Canadian history. I hasten to add that it was not a pointy-headed white hood. It was had a nice flat top on it, so you wouldn't get confused with the iconography of that. So, Ken, uh, was the name Igor Gazenko familiar to you before you saw it pop up in the script for this week's show?
1: It was vaguely familiar. I knew that he was a defector, but I did not know if he was a defector who was part of the Angleton uh, slash Fifth Man nonsense. I didn't know the specifics of his defection, because as you hint It is part of Canada's proud history of fighting communism, not necessarily part of America's proud history of fighting communism, and one can only know so much. But uh, looking into it, I I found a great deal of, uh, of interest in the Guzenko affair, not least the notion of seeing him come on TV in the 60s or 70s, I guess, to talk about the Cold War or whatever, uh, or, or what a bunch of jerks the Mounties had been to him. <laughs> uh, the, 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 the degree of effort he had to go to, to to get that Cold War started implies that I must have been there, you know, feeding a bunch of people Molson just to get it uh, get it moving. Prime Minister uh, Mackenzie King, like, I think for for months he tried to prevent any of it from getting out. And I guess his, was it the permanent bureaucracy that said, no, you're not going to do that. Or was it other members of the liberal party who said, we don't necessarily want to start out as the pro Soviet party in Canada. We don't think that's going to work out for us.
0: It was, (laughs) uh, it was the intelligence apparatus basically that forced the, his hand. So uh, King is Canada's uh, longest serving prime minister. In fact, uh, uh, spanned both wars mm-hmm. um with little, I think there was an interregum in, in there in the, in the 30s but he came back and um he's a fascinating figure himself and yes. could appear in uh an Any number of <laughs> of the consulting occultist Stephen because he was a medium who uh took advice from the spirit of his, uh, his dog. dead mother and dog mm-hmm. but he was famously uh, famous for wanting to slow walk everything yeah. his famous utterance in uh the the first war was Conscription, if necessary, but not necessarily conscription. Uh, and that, uh, sums up, uh, Canada in a lot of ways. It certainly <laughs> sums up King. So he's at the end of his career. He's weary. He's tired. And the last thing he emotionally wants is for another war to be starting up or to confront the reality that the Soviets have got, uh, sleeper agents already ensconced throughout the West, uh, ready to make Mischief. Mm -hmm. And so uh, he really wants this problem to uh, go away and he has to get his his hand forced in order for uh, Gazenko to be brought forward. Um, So I wouldn't say it so much as pro Soviet as pro denial. It's a problem he just didn't want to be faced with. And uh, Gazenko is credited as being the first defector to reveal the existence of sleeper agent programs.
1: Although we knew about sleeper agent programs before because we uh we had, in the United States had uh members of the of the code breaking community the guy who set up the venona intercepts for example suspected that venona was talking to and about uh soviet agents of influence and sleeper agents in the United States they just Can couldn't explain venona a bit uh, venona is the program by which the soviets um because all of a sudden they needed a whole bunch of one uh one-time pads uh during the German invasion they printed duplicate copies of a one-time pad and as you can tell from the name one-time pad that turns out to be a terrible idea so a lot of their their message traffic between say 43 and 45 42 and 45 was vulnerable to being decrypted because it was no longer a one-time pad so the um uh the United States um Signal Intelligence Service which was the army thought I'll bet that there's going to be something in these Soviet codes that we want to uh, break down. Um, and this was uh, the chief of uh, military intelligence, the head of G2, General Clark. Uh, who distrusted Stalin, apparently the only person in the Roosevelt administration <laughs> who did. Um, and so he wanted to make sure that they weren't trying to make a separate peace with the, with the Germans was his first worry. And once they started breaking the codes, they were like, oh, look at that. There's all kinds of stuff in here. Um, and uh, among others, you know, evidence of, uh, the, uh, treason of the Rosenbergs, uh, Alger Hiss, et cetera, et cetera, Klaus Fuchs, uh, the, the, the spy at uh, Los Alamos. So lots of, of, um, of, of data was turning up, and we did have people who were suspicious in, you know, parts of the American uh, intelligence apparatus uh, that that kind of thing was going on. I think Kuchenko is really the, the big proof of
0: it happening, though, or Kuzenko. Yeah, he's the one who came out and said, yeah, we're doing that.
1: And and dumps it on the desk of, of enough people that it gets into the news.
0: <laughs> right. And so it then becomes an undeniable fact that uh, uh, has to be uh, dealt with. So, um, as you suggest, he sort of went on to become A uh, sort of Canadian media figure, despite the fact that for many years he was uh, living under an assumed uh, identity with an Anglo name. Uh, He, in fact, wrote a couple of books and one of them won the Governor General's Award for Fiction, um, which for the uninitiated is sort of... uh, Canada's would be Canada's equivalent of the Pulitzer Prize, except, of course, because it's Canada run by the federal government. (laughs) Now, it's somewhat less impressive to do this in 1954, because that's before the advent of Canadian literature, as we know it, and begins with Margaret Lawrence and uh, Mordecai Rickler and Margaret Atwood and so forth. But still, can't think offhand of any other uh, major espionage figures who have uh, won their nation's top literary prize for fiction. Did
1: Somerset mom?
0: Perhaps, I don't know whether he won, but he's, uh, he was best known for his literary work. Yeah. And then the fact that he was in, <laughs> involved in espionage is like with Dennis Wheatley and Ian Fleming right. and uh, Roald Dahl. That's a uh, interesting color in their literary careers rather than
1: starting out as a spy and, course, and moving um, into Whittaker literature. And Chambers uh, translated Bambi which I think won a prize.
0: Well, there you go. Um, (laughs) So were there other little...
1: This this has got to be the the sightiest sidebar in our history of sidebarring the hut.
0: Well, uh, so speaking of sidebars, did you note any other little uh, details that connected to other stories through Gazenko or clicked on any uh, lights for you?
1: I also wanted to point out that he got played by Dana Andrews in a movie, so that's pretty good.
0: Yes, there was a William Wellman movie, mm-hmm. which I have not seen, called The Iron Curtain, but which is very Are you going to rush right out and, and see it? Um, I'm going to investigate its availability. I kind of suspect it's uh, uh, a rarity, but we'll see. Yeah. Uh, William Wellman is not uh, an unknown director by any means, right, so... Yeah. Uh Dana Andrews, perhaps not the most thrilling performer in the history well, of cinema, but, uh, but still. But still. Yeah. Um and to see uh it must be interesting because that's forty-eight is really early to be doing a a movie on the uh the Soviet menace. Mm-hmm. So we'll have to see what the uh, what the availability is on that. Um so how do we nerd trope uh Gazenko or create a a a sort of a parallel figure today? What would he know about uh vampires, for example.
1: Well, I think that one of the things that I did notice, uh, talking about your, your side elements is the place that they took him to, uh, debrief was camp X, which was sort of Canada's, uh, super camp. And by the way, congratulations, Canada, for naming your camp, camp X. Good job. That's where, that's where they trained, uh, Canadian commandos, They trained Canadian uh, guys who were in the SOE or in the OSS. They gave
0: Wolverine his skeleton.
1: They they gave Wolverine his skeleton. They had all the all of your Canadian uh, super badass stuff was at Camp X. And in fact, the CIA's uh, farm is named in honor of the farm that was on the Camp X site. So I was really excited that uh, he went to Camp X because once you're at Camp X, now um, you can be you know uh you you can be tied in with all manner of, of vampires and uh and secret signals intelligence and ufos and, and wolverine and, and whatever else. Before then, he would just have known uh the whatever the truth was that Stalin is up to, given his supernatural concerns, and whether that would be Gusenko knows where the, uh, magicians are that Stalin is persecuting, or he knows that Stalin is actively persecuting magicians, or whether he knows that, uh, Beria is a vampire, that's, I think, maybe the, the kind of question you can answer within your game, but certainly, as the guy who is sitting there with the Soviet codes back and forth throughout World War II, um, he has access to any of the weird, weird War Two intel that is going to come forward, so you're, um, uh, your 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 Hydra operations or your U- crashed UFOs uh, or your um, uh, Nazi bell project, all of that is going to have potentially crossed his desk because he would be um, finding out from the Canadian uh, network what Canada and the United States had learned about these World War II, uh, Weird War II operations. So it might be that he is, weirdly enough, your doorway into whatever the Nazis were up to because... Uh, the Soviets grab it and then take it off into into Siberia, but during the war, Guzenko will have been sending you know queries to all of uh, Canada and, and north america 's agents in place
0: now, in the dream hands of Paris continuity, of course, Stalin uh, is doing his best to shut down. Access to the Dreamlands because he fears the worldwide Surrealist Revolution that the uh, Surrealists want to put in order because they're uh, communists but not good Stalinists mm-hmm. uh, by any means. And during the war, the Dreamlands freezes over. So it may be that uh, it's once Gazenko realizes that the Dreamlands are about to unthaw and begin to affect the world again that he has some reason why he knows that he has to uh, get out and uh switch sides because he doesn't um, want to have to deal with whatever is waiting for him in the dreamlands when it uh, uh thaws out unless he has uh, the protection of good honest Canadian magicians right. who of course can be uh entrusted to uh make any dream uh dull <laughs> and, and dreary and safe.
1: <laughs> yes and, and and shave all the rough corners off the the gugs are now uh, muzzled and uh kept yes. on on tight leashes um the uh I think the possibility is that he's in World War II, right? He's a cipher clerk in Russia during, during the first part of the war. And so he is going to be aware of the freezing of the dreamlands because he's part of this covert unit that, uh, creates these, uh, these code signals. And again, what are, what are the surrealists doing except they take data and they mash it up into new patterns. Well, that's what you do when you, when you encode something, right? You, you pull a clear message and you disguise it in, other sorts of, 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 information, but the truth is still underneath it. And so maybe he's part of a, of a, of a, a, a post Gorky, post Boky occult code network. Remember we had Gleb Boky, the, 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 the magic Soviet, uh, code master. Maybe he's part of that tradition and he learns that, uh, some of the transmissions that come from either the French resistance, the, the, the communist portions of that, or elsewhere will tell him about conditions in the Dreamlands. And he thinks, well, this is good. I've got a source of power, just like Gleb Boki had. I can rise to a position of power in Soviet cryptology. And as long as this, uh, as the Dreamlands stay frozen over, I'm good, because no one can reveal that I am up to Gleb Boki-like activities. And then once he starts getting the intercepts that say that it's, it's breaking up after the war, that's when he says, oh, my God, now... My bokiness, my bokiest tendencies will be revealed and I have to flee to the peace and safety of Canada.
0: Right. And of course, we're leaving something on the table by not referring to the hood, because if he has looked into the dreamlands and seen something horrifying that prompts him to defect, maybe his face has been uh, disfigured or is monstrous or uh, or resembles in
1: the, uh, inscri- the inscriptions on Mount Kadath.
0: Right. Uh, So he's they have to hide his uh, face for political reasons. There's a level of uh, people in the organization who are only aware of the uh, natural implications of what's going on and not the supernatural geopolitics. So they want to get him on TV and in front of uh, in front of people. But you can't see this horribly disfigured inhuman face. So you have to put put a hood on it. Uh, while again, the Canadian magicians perform their blanderizing magic that will gradually give him um, his true, safe Anglo-looking face.
1: Yeah, the um, uh, the other possibility is that there's no face beneath it at all, right? That the hood is like the Invisible Man; that his his face is, has been destroyed by looking
0: into the Dreamlands. Right, because we know that there is uh, a figure in. Uh, uh, proto Lovecraftian mythology, who is a mask, without a face, right? Yes, so.
1: the veiled prophet or the the masked uh, uh, the man in the yellow mask in um, in uh, in the Dreamlands. So possibly this is a connection then to the Plateau of Lang, which again right. would be have fallen under Soviet influence in the forties.
0: And if you're a pallid king you're going to be naturally drawn to canada absolutely
1: that would be the pallidest of kingdoms i would think
0: well it's time that i preserved my own pallid monarchy by uh, moving this podcast along to our next segment
1: The theodolites and the scritch of uh, graphite against graph paper tell us that we have entered a particularly Victorian segment of the cartography hut. The time when, if you wanted to make a map, you had to get 150 of your favorite native bearers and have them carry stuff all the way across a trackless jungle and stop every, I don't know what it would be, like less than a mile, probably every couple hundred yards to take uh, exacting sightings, which means it takes a great deal of time. But if you've got an empire to defend, you've got to have an empire to map. So we're looking at the maps and surveys of the heroic surveyor era. And Robin, I think you have a favorite heroic surveyor that you want to start us out with.
0: Right. Uh, his name is uh, Nain Singh Rawat, and he is, uh, I think, the, the patron hero of surveyors. Uh, he was uh, uh, trained uh, by the British, but he did a lot of uh, uh, legwork, uh, literally so, in uh, mapping out uh, the subcontinent. He worked on foot, and uh, in the 1860s and 1870s, he made a number of incredibly uh, heroic Journeys across the landscape, uh, measuring things according to this uh, literal pacing system that, that he calibrated his paces to be exactly right. And uh, for example, one of his great journeys was a twelve hundred mile uh, journey through India, mapping it out all in detail. So, in today's age of uh, you know Google Maps and satellites, when we can. Uh, You know, we could have picked any coordinate on his journey and find it now and see what it looked like, probably with a street view from the last uh, three months. Mm -hmm. The thought of the well-known places in the world also being trackless and mysterious uh, seems kind of distant from us now. But uh, like a lot of developments that we take for granted is a really recent development In our history. And so uh, reading about him inspired the idea of a campaign frame that's all about journeying through a wilderness and having to uh, track and account for all of it as the frame that gives the party of adventurers the things that they are doing. Now, you could either do a historical version of that where uh, you're essentially proceeding through Uh, a mythic magical version of India or name your other uh, continent uh, and perhaps gradually making it less magical as you impose your mathematics uh, on it. Or you can take this as a metaphor for an imaginary world. Uh, Obviously if any kind of fantasy world is going to uh, be uh, largely uh, unexplored, at least in the mathematical sense, and uh, maybe new means of measuring have come along and, uh, for example, in an F-20 world, you're mapping out all the dungeons is part of a grand surveying project, and the uh, monsters you kill and the treasure you take is just sort of ancillary as far as the people who are sending you on your missions are concerned. That's how you uh, support yourself while you're doing this, but the real project is mapping out the world. Or again, you could uh, have sort of a uh, far-future apocalyptic world where that you're having to remap after... Uh, a great dark age where all of the cartographic knowledge has been lost and needs to be restored or a science fiction world where for some reason uh, you have to explore it on foot rather than just exploring it uh, by satellite. So out of those many, frames, Ken, is there one that would strike you as something that you would enjoy running or that you could sell to your players? Um
1: the one that I could sell to my players, although I say this having failed to sell it to them twice in a row, is <laughs> the uh the, the mapping of North America, which is one that I've wanted to do for a while, where you play uh people who are who are mapping North America to impose a chosen reality onto the 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 mystical uh unknown interior. And you could certainly do that with Tibet, which is where our buddy, uh, Nain Singh Rawat was wandering around, uh, and you could do it with a, uh, with a, uh, an imaginary continent in an F-20 world, or I would say you could also do it even in the modern world if it's like another dimension, right? You're, you're going into the dreamlands or you're going into, uh, the shadow dimension through this etheric portal. And now there's no satellites overhead. How do I map it? How do I know how far anything is? And I have, you have to, figure out, first of all, what the, you know, what the, what the you know astronomical constants are. What's the pole star in this new dimension? What's the horizon? What's north? What's south? What does any direction mean? Do compasses work? Stuff like that. And then you have to figure out where everything is in relation to each other. And is it just a matter of counting steps the way that um, uh, Nain Singh Rawat basically did? Or is it a, are are there other methodologies, you know, is it a number of nightmares in or a number of sleeps in is, is how your your distance uh, works. So there's all kinds of ways you can play with the, the quotidian nature of mapping. I like the idea of mapping an unknown continent to create its reality as opposed to to disclose its uh, reality, which is, you know, certainly fun. But I've played lots and lots and lots of uh, good old wilderness hex crawl adventures in my youth. And so I'm kind of done with those, whereas, uh, I have not yet done enough, uh, reality building games, uh, and perhaps I will never do enough of them, but I haven't done enough of them to be bored yet. And I think that, uh, uh, you can start with your, your Lewis and Clark, but also Zebulon Pike. There's a lot of weird stuff going on with him. Uh, there's a Scotsman coming down out of Canada
0: trying to map America. Um, uh, for their trying own to make it sensible, purposes. I'm sure. So, yes <laughs> <laughs> right. Pose some quick. basic standards. <laughs> so, whatever frame you pick, one of the visual marker that's going to mark your success and progress through the game is the slow revelation of the map. Whether you are establishing what's on the map or merely discovering what's there, that uh, week after week, the GM can then reveal either reveal more of the map or have you draw more of the map, and uh, that could be something that the uh, GM could uh, create the original in something like uh, Pro Fantasy's, uh campaign cartographer software and make something really gorgeous and then have the uh, players uh, create their version of it as they go and that from week to week, you know, you uh, pull up the thing and stick it on the easel and here's uh, what you've got now and what your initial choices are then at the beginning of each session are just which quadrant do you want to hit next? Now, necessarily, I think you're going to have sort of a picaresque structure, um, and I think that after a while, just encountering random uh, beings and uh, physical dangers is going to wear thin, so you're going to want to, I think, go to more of a case-of-the-week structure where, for example, in in the Dying Earth stories, where Kugel will move to a new sort of isolated, uh, forgotten area of this uh, world that is now so old, it is all new and unfamiliar again, uh, and then find a weird thing in this new place, encounter that, map it, and then the group moves on to the the next location. But still, all along, the size of the map uh, creates a visual representation of all of the time that you've put in and a reminder of the fun you've had and also a reminder of things that you could then uh, pick up and. Uh, make callbacks to, so that if you look at the map and see, oh, well, uh, four weeks ago they were in this shoreland area where they uh, met the mollusk people, Uh, oh, well, they're heading to another shoreline, let's find a new spin to put on the mollusk people when they uh, meet them again. The map then sort of becomes your focus of the narrative and a a visual expression of it. Uh,
1: that, uh, That becomes more of a Star Trek sort of a situation where you're going from planet to planet and finding out what it's like, and although you don't actually, you're not necessarily putting them onto a map of the quadrant, you could, you could theoretically be doing that in the sense that you have to color it in. Is it safe? Is it dangerous? Are there starport facilities? Um, you know, are they Nazis? You know, whatever that you would be putting onto that map. And then in theory, you're mapping it out for your federation or your, or your, uh, combine. Uh, I want to sort of go back to the notion of making the map the point of the game, because the trouble as you say is that eventually random encounters in the hills are going to get a little old, and even story of the week picaresque stuff I think what I would like to do is, given that the mapping is the goal uh or the uh, the, and the sort of the meta structure of the game, put it into the story of the game so that you say all right you 're mapping this new fantasy continent in the magical world of f twenty the the tallest mountain will be the mountain where, uh, the gods have walked. And so every, every place that they've touched, all the grass will have magical properties. The rocks that they've smashed will, will yield, um, uh, uh, plus four sling stones if you make them into sling stones. Everywhere on that top of that mountain is going to be magical or, or godly or divine. And you, the cleric, will be able to get really awesome spells there by praying. And then you say, finding the source of a river gives you the source of all the magic that's downstream of that river. So, you've gone up the river and you've fought nagas and you've fought octopus men and you've fought uh, freshwater mollusk people who hate the shoreline mollusk people and all of them have got their own weird magic-y thing. Oh, can all the, the, the mollusks s- just get along? No, they cannot, Robin. That's only in Canada. <laughs> and even some of those mollusks are working for Stalin! Well, there's,
0: there's actually heavily heavy regional resentments between canadian mollusks but uh, that would also be a sidebar that would be
1: another sidebar um but but when you get to the the source of the of the river you uh and you and you fight the giant or the or the dragon that that breeds out the water uh, the, the great naga then you get the magic of all those uh things that the, the that were downstream and and so you create the goal being to find A geographical feature that you know is there, and it might be something just as easy as, oh, that's the the Valley of Opals where the Griffins come from, and they're like, okay, we're going to follow the Griffins to the Valley of Opals. That's a more conventional fantasy quest thing, but if you tie it in specifically to say, no, the tallest mountain will have this god's footprint on it, and the source of each river will give you magic, and if you can find uh, this pass... Uh, through the mountains, then the ranger will be able to uh, find the bones of the first ranger who defended uh, the world against orcs and get a uh, super rangering ability or something. So that every, every, the geographical features feed into the self aggrandizement of the player characters. I think that that can give you more of a motivation than. Alright, you all agreed that you really want to find the tallest mountain in the world, but you don't really, because what you really want to do is beat up mollusk people and much taller mollusk people and mollusk people with plus one mollusk knives and, oh, kill me. Um, I, I think that if you, if you tie it into the, the overarching fiction, I think you, you build a much stronger game that can fe- have interesting sorts of feedback and then the players will start coming up with things and saying, hey, we found this, uh, well of fire. If we find out where the fire well comes from, you know, do we get, What do we get for that? And you're like, well, I don't know. Maybe you get this thing and, you know, extra fireball uh, for the magician or something.
0: And the fact that the building a map is the goal of the campaign means that, by logical extension, the goal of the running antagonists, which you're going to develop by having the players encounter random uh, people at first and then whatever group they seem to really latch onto is the opposite of them and the ones they... Uh, love to hate are the ones who have a reason to want to destroy that map and keep that area terra incognita now
1: on another projection you and i could have been exactly
0: and so uh it may be a simple matter of the fact that the um, making a map uh, contains the um, magic and makes everything scottish and sensible and you don't want that uh and so the bad guys want to uh, stop you from imposing Uh, rationalism and order and uh, dreary non-supernaturalism on things or that they just want to steal your map after you've put together enough of it because having the map gives you mystical power over all of the places that are mapped. It's like, you know, having the correct surveying uh, figures is the equivalent of uh, over a, a place is the equivalent of knowing a person's true name mm-hmm. or, you know, in your, uh, space opera game, just, you know, other space explorers want to conk you on the head and take your map because they can then go back to the, uh, galactic center and, uh, either claim the reward for it or, uh, then go and sell it to the rival star empire who will use it for their colonization efforts. Or to space pirates. Indeed. Yes. Um, so I think there's a, uh, We've out probably at least a dozen different possible campaigns that you could build around the idea of being a surveyor. So I think uh, we have, get this, amply surveyed the territory and can move on to our final segment. The alien big cat shooting us the feline stink eye from out on the moors. The gray alien holding his probing stick and checking the refrigerator for leftover Chinese food. Tell us that we've once more entered the fuzzy, undefinable, and mysterious boundaries of the Elliptony Hut. And, can I'm not sure that we've done a full-on UFO contactee uh, yet. We've done some UFO abductees. Do you want to sort of survey the general field of uh, contactees, or do you want to dive right into the story of George Hunt Williamson?
1: I think I'd like to dive right into the story of George Hunt Williamson, because making him just a UFO contactee, I think uh, I, I think he is bigger than that. He's better he than that. He contains multitudes. He contains multitudes. He is, I have said before, the universal joint of the New Age. He is the Kevin Bacon of... The uh, patchouli smelling part of the bookstore, everything is going to meet up in George Hunt Williamson after just one or two different uh, steps. So just focusing on the fact that he met blonde aliens in the desert in 1952 is is not enough. There needs to be a
0: lot more. It's just one item in his in his date book. Well, then, right. why don't you start off by telling us uh, about his background and how he first achieved uh, eleptonic fame?
1: Well, like all great occultists, George Hunt Williamson was born in Chicago.
0: This is a very parochial episode between the two of us here.
1: It really is, isn't it? Um, he, get, he gets thrown out of the University of Arizona for being a terrible scholar, uh, also like m- many great occultists. Um, and he decided, and this is after the war. This is in 1951. He's read a book by William Dudley Pelly, the founder of the Silver Shirts, the theos- theosophist Nazi in America, or theosophist yes. fascist Search in America. Search
0: Ken and stuff talkaboutstuff.com for the episode number where we talk about him. Yes.
1: Um, he, uh, he wrote a book called Star Guests, did our William Dudley Pelley, in which um, uh, he is going back to sort of theosophical first principles and saying that the, the theosophists, uh, the theosophical masters are aliens from the past, and that they have come into our present through uh, the magical contacts, and they've come into our present from things that we're seeing and visions. And George Hunt Williamson thinks, this is the guy I want to hook up with. Again, after world war 2 before world war 2 maybe you can be forgiven for hooking up with William Dudley Pelley, because you thought he was just a good old-fashioned theosophist. After, yes. he's a Nazi, okay? Right.
0: He runs the silver shirts, which, they're silver, but it's still a color in the shirt. still a
1: color in the shirt. That's your warning. So, he works for Pelly's little cult, his post-war cult, uh, writing its publication, its, its magazine. Uh, Pelly has been engaging in automatic writing to take down the dictation of the Mahatmas slash aliens. Uh, and again, this is something that, uh, is very uh, a foundational part of theosophy that you would you would take your automatic uh, writing dictation. Uh, there were automatic writing uh, circles in somewhere in, in in Nazi Germany as well, although that's m- merely because they were everywhere. Um, and uh, I don't know if you've done William T. Stead, but he had a, a message bureau that would have dead people write you letters uh, because he would hire uh, good channelers to do that. Um, so there's lots of lots of uh, automatic writing going on, but. Pelly is sorting, or Williamson rather, is sorting through all of this data, uh, that he's, uh, that Pelly has gotten from the automatic writing. And so, uh, Williamson then begins to talk to the aliens, uh, via a Ouija board. And he hears about, uh, the cult of, uh, George Adamski, who is, um, another sort of mystical guy who is drawn into, uh, the UFOs. And goes out to meet with Georgia Damsky and becomes the sort of um uh you know I what do you want to say? this is like uh Lennon and McCartney meeting, I guess, or um uh, uh, Keith and Mick, and so they 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 team up and they go out into the desert, and Damsky is telepathically chan- channeling Space brothers, and they go off into the desert and they uh, meet Orthon, who is a tall, blonde white man. Uh, from Venus in Desert Center, California in 1952, in November of 1952. And, uh, Adamski goes over the hill, talks to Orthon, comes back and reveals the truth. And Williamson, that's the moment he writes, uh, the flying saucers speak, uh, because he doesn't want to meet with Orthon. He thinks that he's getting good information on his Ouija board and his short uh, wave radio. So he sort of begins to splinter away from Adamski, but he's, he's already there. And he then builds up his own, uh, his own set of Sort of mystical beliefs about ancient astronauts. He's part of the the foundation of ancient astronauts. He um, uh, writes a book called Secret Places of the Lion, uh, inventing the the theory of the walk-ins, the people that uh, are the secret masters that possess people in um, uh, in modern day, and that was a huge and that's thing,
0: hugely influential,
1: hugely influential. Um, he writes a book called UFOs Confidential with John McCoy, who is another fascist, by the way, um, and then goes to Peru under the name Brother Philip and starts writing books about the mystic secrets of the Andes, in which it turns out white aliens came to Peru and made the Nazca lines <laughs> and taught them the uh, Old Testament and uh, did all the other sorts of things that white aliens do. So um, he's also got uh, in um, Secret Places the Lion, there's a strong Velikovskian, uh section because he takes his prehistory that the Walkins teach us uh, from Velikovsky. Um, he at some point changes his name to Michael De- Dobrenovich, which is a Serbian uh, name. I don't think that he was Serbian, uh, but he apparently liked it. And um, uh, then went around Latin America, and depending on how credulous you are, you believe that he was a major influence on Mayan archaeology, or more likely a major influence on making things up about Mayan archaeology.
0: It, it involves less walking.
1: It does involve less walking. Um, and then uh, Williamson also... Let's see, the other thing that, he, that he's... Um, he has got an, uh, another exciting thing because he has one of his contactees talking about uh how the aliens are communists and that they, they they've transcended capitalism, they have super weapons, and then the FBI gets interested and they start <laughs> following him around.
0: <laughs> We're not concerned about the aliens, but once we hear their comments I
1: mean, now now it's it's trouble. Um uh some of his fellow channelers uh, vanished in a in a small plane, which is great um uh, a guy named Carl Hunrath who is the guy who started all this nonsense about communist alien superweapons
0: and then his plane disappears and then mm. his plane disappears that proves everything it
1: proves that he was testing out communist alien superweapons and was destroyed um uh, he has a uh, the uh, Williamson's radio operator dies of a heart attack so he's he's a curse and he's a and he's a spark he's 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 everywhere you want to be is is that's what George Hunt Williamson is up to and he's got so many uh he, 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 he does sort of, he prefigures Castaneda. He goes amongst the Zuni and, uh, the Navajo and, and talks about how their simple but true ways tell us that, uh, white people and aliens are always right. He hung up with the Chippewa, um, and, uh, uh sort of made up their myths, uh, to imply that they had ancient aliens that came and visited them. So he's very, very much part of the, the, the primordial America movement as well. Um, I, I don't know that he has an Earth Changes thing, but that might be the only major part. Of uh, the new age belief system that he has not gotten his fingers in, and it may just be that I haven't read everything. And he's what
0: reading. is Earth Changes in this context? Earth
1: Changes is that uh, the continents are all moving around. Oh, you know what? He is in Earth Changes because Edgar Casey, the Sleeping Prophet, uh, his son sent him all of Casey's classified South America reports because he heard that George Hunt Williamson was in Peru, and he said if you could check out Casey's revelations about Atlantis and you in South America. Uh, that would really help me out, and so he is tied into that as well. So the notion that that um, the, the 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 continents uh, all move around, and uh, probably during an astrological alignment or astronomical alignment, there's going to be massive earthquakes, and Atlantis will rise, and new will rise, and North America will sink. And unless you're one of the elect who are standing in Stell, Illinois, you're all gonna you're all gonna die in the earthquake. That's the basically the Earth Changes uh, movement in a nutshell. But he's but he's tied to that through Casey. So there's there's all manner of stuff that uh, that George Hunt Williamson's got going on, but he's he's talking to aliens through shortwave radios, through Ouija boards. He may have met one with uh, Adamski, or he may not. Uh, Adamski sort of started taking all the credit and saying, I'm the only guy who gets to talk to aliens, and that made Williamson mad. His, his uh, fans say that he's the model for Indiana Jones, which, of course, they say about everyone.
0: Yeah, unfortunately, the crystal skull <laughs> adds a little more evidence to that. That's
1: <laughs> He's only the model for the fourth movie, oh, yeah. in which he's hooking up with communists though interesting mm. um so there you go and uh, uh he prefigures the the, the Sitchin uh 12th planet because he's talking about the aliens weapons that destroy um uh destroy the asteroids and and create uh, uh, uh the bronze A- or the uh, Sumerians and Babylonians prehistory stuff he's He's very much, uh, everywhere you want to be, I guess is what I want to say about George Hunt Williamson. And he's probably, a, a fascist the whole damn time. Um, he does not seem to have ever unfascisted. He sort of soft pedals it, but again, there's, there's never any black aliens. There's never even any particularly tan aliens. Um, and everyone that's being, uh, possessed by the great white brotherhood. Um, is, you know, there's seven rays, but we all know what the best ray is. I think that's his, that, that would be what he would say.
0: So when does he leave this plane of existence?
1: He leaves this plane of existence, uh, in 1986. So relatively late into the process that he has started. He was uh, 60 at the time, which is not super old, but I guess if you've been spending the last half of your life in Peru and Yucatan and whatnot, then, uh, maybe you, uh, you, you don't it seems get all younger the to me all the time it does yes um but uh, but in nineteen eighty six dying at sixty was not particularly unusual, unlike vanishing in a small plane or drowning in a sh- shallow pond, which another one of his um uh co conspirators back in the fifties turned out to have done
0: normally, the question is how do you turn this into a, a game, but I guess here the question is what part of it can't you turn into a game?
1: How do you not turn him into a game? He's just such a guy.
0: And uh, do we know? Uh, obviously, he's a fascist. That tells us something. We can infer things about his personality uh, from that. Does he have a, a colorful uh, personal life in addition to his colorful mythic life? Or
1: I know nothing against him in terms of cheating on his wife or um, uh, taking up with young, impressionable uh, novitiates of of, of whatever uh, of whatever type. Um, I think that really he's just all about the fascism and the aliens. Um, it, one imagines that he had had enough enemies in the UFO circuit that if he did have a tendency in that direction, it would have been brought up by one of his enemies. And the fact that I, he eventually, I think, became a Nestorian priest, or said he did. And you can't have a lot of young ladies hanging around you if you're pretending to be a Nestorian priest. So he may have been one of those fellows like uh, like Himmler, who uh, who's, um, uh, whose drives are all sort of focused on being crazy.
0: Yes, his, his vices are all ideological. Yes.
1: Oh, oh I, I should mention that his uh, co-author McCoy um, uh, is not just a fascist, but also argues that the international bankers are causing UFOs. So um, uh, he's uh, an actual anti-Semite, mm. and a
0: what is international, international banker? Bankers what could code that for? mean? Mm. Yeah, if
1: people are so fond of the Old Testament and so not fond of the hero of the Old Testament. It's a very weird fanfic tradition as far as
0: I'm concerned. Once you go to the whole <laughs> trouble of having this cosmological uh, mythology, it takes some effort to then uh, rope it all back to blame it on the Jews. That's, uh... You'd think so. Although, again, right.
1: I think that that was more McCoy's thing. And right. Williamson has bigger fish to fry. He's much more worried that everyone understand that real gods are Nordic uh, supermen and the, doesn't really care what you think about other people because he gets to talk to the real gods.
0: Right. It, it takes a constrained mind to look at all that craziness and just go, how could this be more anti-Semitic? Now,
1: I, I I like what you're doing with the UFOs <laughs> and the walk-ins yeah. and the Mayans. but It's just not hateful enough. I don't hate the Jews after reading it, and so I think there may be a problem here. Right. Yeah. So, I, I again, he's certainly not anti-anti-Semite. He doesn't, you know, say, why, how dare you, sir? And he hangs around with enough of these uh weasley uh fascist types that he probably doesn't mind a a a a bit of international banker in his uFO but that doesn't seem to be his main focus except of course in the sort of um uh, way that uh taking uh you know the Old testament and turning it into a story about Nordic aliens from Venus is by definition anti-Semitic because it says, oh, you know, Judaism, it's a big lie told to you by white people.
0: So if you're uh, assigned uh, the task of uh, writing a time-spanning series of gumshoe scenarios that are all... uh, Touching on different adventures in the in the life of George Williamson. <laughs> yes,
1: because Dracula is too popular. <laughs> <laughs> I need to find a more obscure and annoying thread to tie these adventures. <laughs>
0: Yeah, well, you know, we can we can imagine all sorts of things on on the podcast. podcast. It just yeah. costs us the time of our audio editor. Right. Um, <laughs> so, what? Wh- where do you start? What is uh, what is the highlight uh, sort of inciting event that uh, kicks off the first adventure?
1: Well, I think that the, you if you're going to start, I think you have to start with the with the with the night in the desert, right? Him and Adamski and the other uh, the other Georges um, out there, you know, going over the hill, and Orthon of Venus shows up. Because that's really the the big moment in his life, and you can go back and do a prequel adventure maybe later, or you can. I think it'd be more fun to meet people who are from Williamson's prior life, who are now filtering in now that he's sort of uh, nerd famous in the UFO community. And I think you want to start with with that. I think that certainly if, if this is a, a movie or a, or a or a television show, you start with the meeting in the desert, and then everything you know filters back from that and you keep flashing back and revealing more and more things about what Orthon said to whom. Uh, Williamson points out that Adamski's story keeps changing. Obviously, Williamson's story keeps changing. And so you could sort of do a deal where every single version of the story they told happened, and it just actually keeps changing, and so the universe is all shifty and weird, like in Fringe. Um, but yeah, you, you want to start with 52, and then you want to move forward. You know, the next one can be the FBI, and then the next one can be his first time in Peru— where he sees the Nazca lines for the first time. Um, oh, I should also mention that he meets Andre Puharich, who is uh, the guy who gave us Yuri Geller. So he's also connected to Yuri Geller, and by through Puharich to the whole uh, Men Who Stare at Goats, Government Mind Control, uh, Operation Grill Flame type stuff.
0: So this is, uh, you can do almost anything with a drama system, as long as you have interesting people who want things from each other. And mm-hmm. so this sounds like it could also be a uh, fun... Uh, drama system series pitches to do the uh, history of the UFO contacty fringe, uh, starting with that uh, incident. And you could I think you probably want to fictionalize it a little to add in your own uh, characters or add analogs to these characters so that you could uh, have more ownership over them. But that would be uh, a lot of fun too.
1: Another thing that might be fun in a drama system context, if there's a way to swap out so that you can play a generational saga so that one character, your Williamson, stays the same, but you know you 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 know um uh, adamski is gonna drop out, and you know obviously um uh the the guy who disappears in the small plane is gonna drop out, but then more people will show up like um the 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 nice German lady who found the nazca lines is gonna show up, or uh probably um you know some crystal skull guy is gonna show up there's there's gonna be new people who show up in his life over time, and it'd be nice if they could also be main characters in a way so that you get a sense that he's moving through all of these circles as opposed to it's the four or five guys who were there in 1952 just getting older and crazier as time goes on
0: well uh, that sounds like an exciting idea for a a game and uh, uh, we've laid a bunch of those on you listeners this episode so i think we can once more pronounce our work done at least for another week
1: Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors.
0: Atlas Games.
1: Game Playwright. Dork Tower. Pro Fantasy Software.
0: And Pell Press.
1: Music, as always, is by James Semple.
0: Keep us in identity-concealing hoods by hitting the donate button at KenandRobinTalkAboutStuff.com.
1: Join the stalwart ranks of such repeat contributors as Samuel Kreider and Andrew Miller. Build awareness of your game, Kickstarter, book, or Space Brother message by advertising with us grab the rate sheet at our site
0: on twitter he's at kenneth height and he's at robin
1: d laws
0: see you next time when once again we will talk about stuff